uh, Wednesday night for our midweek worship services. Um, we're especially happy tonight to have Brother John Gooch. Brother John has been with us for several times for our summer uh, series for the past few years. Along with Brother John tonight is his wife, Lisa, and we're glad to have both of you here tonight. Uh, John was born and raised in Branson, Missouri, where he preached his first gospel sermon when he was 17 years old. He attended the University of Central Missouri before spending 25 years in the business world. John and his wife, Lisa, have been married since 1985 and came to Jersey Village in 1994 before becoming a pulpit minister at Jersey Village in August of 2012. He served that congregation as a deacon, an associate minister, and also as an elder. John and Lisa have three adult children, uh, sons, two daughter-in-laws, and two grandchildren. So we are delighted to have John and Lisa with us here tonight. Uh, just a quick update on Jodan. Jodan actually went into surgery at 4.30 this afternoon. Um, the, the surgery is probably going to be four to five hours. So actually, Jodan is in surgery as we are meeting here tonight. So please keep him in your prayers also. Let's have a short word of prayer, and then Brother Gooch will actually take the, the podium. Father, we are indeed blessed to be here tonight. First off, Father, to be a part of your kingdom, your children. And Father, we recognize that is only possible through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, upon Calvary's cross. Father, we're blessed to be a part of your beautiful creation. We're thankful to be a part of the kingdom, and we're thankful for all the blessings we receive as your children in the kingdom. Tonight, Father, we're asking you in a special way to be with uh, Jody and Huffman and those surgeons who are seeing to him and pray that he will have a successful surgery and will be able to make a, a quick rehabilitation and regain his health that he wants so badly and to be pain-free. Tonight, Father, we're thankful for our Brother Gooch who's come our way. We're looking forward to the lesson he's bringing tonight. And Father, we'll ask you to be with uh, Eddie and to, with Alan and Troy as they're not with us tonight. Keep them safe. Bless all of our members, Father, who are ill at this time or those who are struggling with different things in their life. We thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice on our behalf, and we pray through his name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. It's good to be here. We, uh, we always enjoy coming down uh, to Rosenberg, and we were talking on the way down here. I, I don't guess we actually verbalized this, but I was thinking about it. It seems like every time we come down here, it rains a lot. Uh, this year, the schedule must have been wrong, because we're uh, a couple of weeks late. We missed the rain. But it is good to be here, and I, I appreciate so much the invitation uh, to come. I appreciate the Wednesday Summer Series. Uh, it's exciting for me. I believe it's great for congregations to get to hear new perspectives and new voices. We were certainly blessed at Jersey Village to have Eddie with us last week. Uh, we have Alan in, uh, later this summer. And I think that's a good thing. It's also good for preachers to get out and to see old friends and to make new friends and to have new audiences that haven't heard your jokes already and so you can uh, do some new things. And that's good too. But I enjoy it because wherever we go, we're always with the family of God. I was excited just a moment ago. My wife pointed out to me that you all have some polishing the pulpit books uh, out here. 
And Lisa and I went last year. It was the first time we'd ever gone. Uh, there was a Han connection to that. Kevin Han, Alan's son, had been telling me what a great uh, conference Polishing the Pulpit is. And we went uh, really not sure what we were getting ourselves into. And we were just absolutely amazed at what happens at Polishing the Pulpit. Uh, in fact, we made up our minds that if anything ever happened that we could not but have but one week a year in vacation, that's where we would go. It was just such an uplifting uh, experience and educational experience. But the thing that stuck with me so much was here you are in this town. It's not a very big town, Sevierville, Tennessee. Uh, and everywhere you go, you were seeing brothers and sisters. There were about 4,000 Christians at this conference last year. And all of us had to wear these lanyards that had our name tags on. So when you would go out for lunch or go out for dinner, every restaurant would be full of Christians. And that was it was just a neat experience, a great reminder that we're all part of God's family. I am uh, of the belief that we human beings are a diverse bunch. And one of the things that we're uh, diverse about is our talents. We all have talents. Every single one of us have talents. Some of us have uh, different talents. In fact, all of us have different talents. And some of them are extreme. Some of them not so much. Uh, I'm a huge baseball fan. In fact, I'm a huge St. Louis Cardinal baseball fan, which is not always popular around these parts these days. But one of the things that I enjoy about watching baseball is the immense talent that some of these guys have. Uh, you've got guys that are throwing baseballs 100 miles an hour. You have guys hitting baseballs 500 feet and, and so forth. But yet when you get to, to studying the lives of these athletes, and whether it doesn't have to be baseball, it can be basketball, football, whatever, they have a unique and special talent. But the guy who's throwing a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, if you put him in a kitchen, probably could not cook dinner if his life depended on him. And a guy who can run a football up and down a 100-yard field may not be able to fix the, the leak in the faucet. All of us are able to do different things. All of us have different talents. But there is one thing that we all do, and we all do it very well. In fact, we have been doing it all our lives. We're, we're masters at it. Lisa and I have a four-year-old grandson, and he was a master at it as soon as he could speak. All of us are extremely good at making excuses. We are born that way. It is something that's instinctive for us to be able to make excuses. And we excel at it. Now here's the thing. If you ever get in a situation where you can't come up with an excuse, you can go on the internet and you can go to websites and you can put in what type of an excuse that you need and pop, there they are. There's a whole slew of them. And if you're still struggling with an excuse, there is a website that you can go to for $15, you can get a doctor's excuse from a certified licensed physician. Now think about that for just a moment. That means that you can get out of work, you can get out of school, you can get out of jury duty. It is a free pass to get out of anything for 15 bucks. My, how technology has improved our lives. As I was preparing this lesson, I was looking on the internet, I have to admit, at excuses. And there were some that I thought were pretty good. One of them was, 
I'm late because the blood pressure machine at the grocery store was broken with my arm inside. I thought that would work pretty well. The other one was I, I glued my eyelids together with super glue. I thought it was contact lens cleaner. And then there was another one, and I don't know if this one is a, a sexist remark or not, but it was, I'm late because my husband thinks it's funny to hide my car keys before he goes to work. I don't know if that would work or not. But here's one that will work. In our culture today, this one is guaranteed to work. I'm late because the line at Starbucks was too long. I say that because in our culture today, Starbucks is, uh, an, uh, an, uh, how do you say that, unalienable right? Everybody thinks you have the right for Starbucks. You know, there are a lot of excuses. But unfortunately, we don't leave them in the world. Unfortunately, we have spiritual excuses as well, don't we? We make excuses because we don't study God's Word enough. We make excuses because we don't pray enough. We make excuses that we miss Bible class or we miss worship. We, we make up excuses because we don't spend enough of our time, our energy, our talents doing the Lord's work. We have excuses for why we don't teach a Bible class. We have excuses for why we don't go visit somebody. I was thinking about that today, Lisa. Don Brooks is still at uh, Health South. Don is, uh, he's not? Oh, good. So I got out of that one. I don't have to make that excuse. That place is less than two miles from my house. And, and my, my mom and dad have had all kinds of health problems in the last few months. My dad, uh, my mom had a stroke about three weeks ago. My dad just got out of the hospital yesterday. I just haven't had time to go visit Brother Don Brooks, and I was feeling bad about that. But of all of our spiritual excuses, there's one that we make the most. There's one thing that, that we always seem to have an excuse for, and that is personal evangelism. And you know, when you stop and think about our excuses, when you, when you stop and think about all the things we come up with, if we were really honest about it, we would admit, for the most part, our excuses sound pretty lame. And I can tell you for sure that when we make excuses before God, they always sound lame because God's not interested in our excuses. fact is, God knows everything about us. God sees everything we do. He knows what we do in secret. He knows what we whisper in the night. There is nothing that we can do that is going to trick God. You know, there's the old saying that says you can fool some of the people some of the time. You can never, ever fool God. God doesn't want to hear our excuses. What God wants to hear from us is He wants to hear that we are coming to resolution. He wants to hear that we are confessing. What God wants to see from us is repentance. He wants to see faithfulness. And He wants to see obedience. You see, when we are before God, excuses just don't cut it. And when I think about excuses in the Bible, there's one particular person I think of. Somebody who made a lot of excuses, and that person is Moses. And Moses had all of these excuses, and it didn't do him any good. It didn't help him any more than it helped us. When God called Moses, Moses came up with excuses, but God didn't want to hear them. God or Moses was the ultimate reluctant warrior. And if you stop and think about that, it's very interesting because Moses is no lightweight in the Bible. I mean, there are very few people in the Bible that we read about more than Moses. In fact, there's only two. 
The only two names that are found in Scripture more than the name Moses are Jesus and David. Moses was an important guy. Moses was the most important figure in the Old Testament. We even see Moses in the New Testament. He is there at the Mount of Transfiguration. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, he's one of the most prominent people listed. Of all the people in the Bible that God spoke to, God never spoke to anybody more than Moses. Moses is not just some guy in the Bible. Moses is the guy in the Old Testament. Moses is a powerful, powerful man in Scripture. And if you stop and think about what Moses accomplished, it is absolutely amazing. Moses didn't have any money. Moses had no military, no army. He had no military experience. He had no sophisticated weaponry. Moses didn't have anything that a, I'm going to say, sane, rational person today would want if given the job that Moses was given. And yet Moses went to the most powerful nation in the world and he walked out with two million of their slaves. He turned their economy upside down. And you could certainly make the argument that it was Moses who destroyed the Egyptian army. Now, if you don't think that's a big deal, let's personalize it for a moment. It would be akin to God calling you tomorrow to go on an airplane over to Moscow and to go meet with Vladimir Putin and say, hey Vlad, I want you to let all of your political prisoners go. I want you to empty out all of your labor camps, and oh, by the way, I want all your oil reserves as we're leaving. That's what God said to Moses. He said, Moses, I want you to do the impossible. And Moses responded to that the exact same way that you and I would respond to it. He made up all kinds of excuses as to why he couldn't do it. And you know, in a very real sense, what God asked Moses to do is exactly what God asked us to do. He said, Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to free these people from the bondage of slavery, slavery in Egypt. But God does the same thing to us. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to free people from the bondage of slavery, the slavery of sin. In fact, we are told, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And we go, but, but God, all nations aren't interested. We live in a world today where people are not interested in spiritual things. And it feels to us like it felt to Moses that this is an impossibility that we're being asked to do. There's no way that we can go and do what God has sent us to do. Benjamin Franklin once said, He that is good at making excuses is seldom good for anything else. And that's a true statement. Except, except with Moses. Because Moses was going to have some help. Moses didn't have to go do this by himself. Moses was going to be led by God. 
And you know, the truth is, you and I are not going to go off by ourselves either. We have been equipped by God. We have been trained by God. We have been given all that we need by God to go complete the mission. We do not have to go by ourselves. Have you ever stopped to think about this, that Moses had already tried this? You know, if you go back into Exodus chapter 2, and around verse 11, you'll start to read the story. Moses is over there in Egypt, and one day he looks out and there's an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he goes over and with the best of intentions intervenes and he kills the Egyptian. And he thinks, you know, I'm the guy who can do this. And if you stop and think about that for just a moment, who was more qualified to deal with the Hebrew-Egyptian problem? Moses was a Hebrew. Moses lived in the royal palace of Egypt. I mean, if there was anybody who could handle this, it would be Moses, right? I mean, he is the guy. But that's not the way it worked, was it? In fact, the Hebrews were mad at him. They, they wanted him out. Pharaoh wanted to kill him. And so Moses took off and he went into hiding. This was a much, much greater problem than Moses could handle on his own. And now, 40 years later, as we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3, 40 years have gone by, and God goes to Moses and he says, Hey Moses, I want you to go back and fix this problem. And Moses says, uh, No, I don't think so. And we look at that and we can understand his excuses. We can understand why he would say no because we would probably do the exact same thing. But there's one problem. God does not accept our excuses. And he didn't accept Moses' either. I want us to look in Exodus chapter 3 tonight and Exodus chapter 4 and let's look at the excuses that Moses gives and how they relate to the excuses that we throw out as well when it comes to personal evangelism. The first excuse that we see Moses make is, who am I? And that's in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11. If you have your Bibles, Exodus 3.11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know what? Moses was 100% right. Moses was a nobody at this point. It's 40 years since he had been in Egypt. And he was also 100% right. If Moses goes out on his own, Pharaoh's not going to listen to him. That's not going to happen. Something else is obvious here. You know, we mentioned earlier that Moses is in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Well, he hadn't received, he hadn't uh, uh, earned, he hadn't built up that, that faith yet. He did not yet have a Hall of Fame faith because if he did, then he would realize what the Apostle Paul realized. And Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Moses didn't have that right. Well, first excuse thrown out and God immediately shoots it down. Verse 12, God says, I will be with you. Now, ultimately, after all the negotiating that is going to take place, this is the one that seals the deal, that God would be with Moses. Moses finally figured that out. Moses came to understand, again, what Apostle Paul did, that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
Moses came to understand that. It took him a long time, but he got there. And there's an obvious truth that we see in this passage, and that is if you are doing the will of God, you will succeed. And that's true with us. Because when God calls us to go and do evangelism, we have to think about what is God's will. Well, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 says that it is the will of God that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever will believe on Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 10 tells us that Jesus is the one sacrifice for all men. Romans chapter 10 says, how can they believe unless someone goes and preaches to them? You see, God is intensely, intensely desirous that men be saved. That is His will and that is His purpose. So when you and I go out and we share the gospel with people, we will be successful. Why? Because God wants us to be. You and I can't think like Moses. You and I cannot think we're a nobody because we miss the point when we do that. You see, when you and I go speak, it's not us that's important. It's the words that God gives us to speak that are important. You and I aren't going to save anybody. It is the power of God and His gospel that is the salvation that is available for all men. If they reject me, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting God. More importantly, they're rejecting salvation. And you and I will not be graded on whether we have been rejected or not. We'll be re uh, regarded, we'll be graded on whether or not we went in the first place. The effort is what God is interested in. Stories told of an elephant and a mouse. And they are out in the woods one day. I don't know if elephants go in the woods, but in this story he is. And they come to a suspension bridge. Y'all remember suspension bridges? I grew up in Branson, Missouri, and at, at uh, uh, Silver Dollar City they had an old suspension bridge. That was the highlight of, of going out there. To me, I love to get on that bridge. Well, you get on this bridge, and it's real rickety, and it sways around. Well, the, the elephant and the mouse go to the suspension bridge, and the, the mouse runs up and gets on top of the elephant, and across they go, and that bridge is going all over the place. And when they get on the other side, the elephant says, boy, did we shake up that bridge. The mouse said that, sorry. Well, the mouse didn't have anything to do with it, did he? The weight of the elephant is what made the, the bridge move. And when it comes to you and I going out and sharing the gospel, you and I don't really have a whole lot of effect there. It's the power of the gospel that changes lives. All we are is the mouthpiece. All we are is the, the voice. God will take care of everything else. And it is the presence of God that's important to Moses in this story. Because if you keep reading verse 12 of Exodus 3, God says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God, you shall serve me on this mountain. Let me read that again. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God, you shall serve me on this mountain. I didn't hear a single and or if, or but, in that statement of God's. There's no doubt here. God is saying to Moses, when you go, you will come back, and you will all be right here on this mountain. 
There's no doubt about it, Moses. I will be with you. I will make this happen. It does not matter who you are. It matters who I am. And the same is true for us. Let's look at excuse number two. And this is one that we all deal with. Moses says, I don't have all the answers. Exodus 3 verse 13. Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses was saying, how can I be effective if I can't answer their questions? You ever done that? <laughs> oh yeah, we have. We do it all the time. We think, you know, I want to, this is the opportunity that I'm going to talk to this friend of mine for umpteen years or this person that I live next door to, they just opened the door, I'm going to step in it, but, oh man, I know they're going to ask me something I don't know. I'm going to say this as, uh, <laughs> as sincerely and as in, in, in the spirit of encouragement and love. If you feel that way, get over yourself. There's not a preacher, there's not an elder, there's not a deacon in the world that can answer all the questions. Nobody can answer all the questions. But there is an answer. And it's the best possible answer that we can give when we find ourselves in that situation. And it is a perfect answer and it works every time. Somebody asks you a question you don't know, you know what you say? I don't know. But I'll get back to you. Now let me tell you why it's a perfect answer. Number one, it shows you're sincere, that you're not just making it up as you go. Number two, you get to go look the answer up, which means that the next time you're asked, you'll know the answer. And number three, you've got an appointment to go back. You can plant the seed, now you can go back and water the seed. That makes this a perfect answer, that we can go back. It's not a negative to say, I don't know. It's an opportunity to say, I don't know. Now, in Exodus 3, God has already revealed himself to, to uh, Moses. But he does more than that. He says, Moses, the people are going to listen to you. Even Pharaoh is going to listen to you. I assure you that you're going to be successful. You're going to bring everybody back here. And oh, by the way, you're going to plunder the richest nation in the world. God has revealed himself to us as well, right here. This book is all we need for life and godliness, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. We don't need anything else. God has revealed Himself. God has shown us the way. And all we need to do is to put the excuses out of the way and go and do what God has called us to do. He'll give us the answers. The answers are right here. Third excuse. They won't listen to me. Now we'll jump down to Exodus 4 and verse 1. Moses answered... But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. I don't think it, uh, that Egypt has the listening problem. I don't think Pharaoh has the listening problem. I think Moses has the listening problem. God has just said, They will listen to you. Pharaoh will listen to you. Actually, Moses didn't have a a listening problem. He had a faith problem. His hearing was just fine. Now, at this point, God is being very patient with Moses. I don't know about you all, but I've raised three boys, and if I had to ask them the third time to go do something, patience would not be high on my list. God is still patient. 
And what God does is he says, all right, Moses, let me show you some power here. Take that staff in your hand and throw it on the ground. He does, and it turns into a serpent. Moses takes off running. God says, come back here and pick it up. This is, by the way, this is the point where Moses and I would part company. Because I would not pick up that snake. He did. He picked it back up. Sir, it is a, it is a staff again. He says, Moses, put your hand in your coat. Takes it back out. It's covered in leprosy. He says, put it back in. Brings it out. It's clean. He says, Moses, when you go into Egypt, the Nile will run red with blood. This is my power. My power is greater than your excuses and your weakness. Sometimes I wonder if we are as guilty as Moses, if we actually have our ears plugged when God says, go and make disciples. And sometimes I think it's because we're afraid of the power part. You know what? I can't take my ink pen out and throw it down and it turns into something. God doesn't do that. But God's power is on display in my life. I feel like the Apostle Paul, when Paul said, oh, what a wretched man am I? Guilty. And you know, that's the power of God in our lives. Because when you go and you talk to people, there is no greater power that you can share with them than to tell them your story. I don't know if any of you have read the book by Michael Shank called Muscle and Shovel. You know, I read that book, and that book has been a, a, an amazing evangelism tool. We've had a number of baptisms at Jersey Village from that book. I read frequently of different uh, preachers in the Brotherhood talking about baptizing somebody who read that book. You know what that book is? It's somebody's conversion story, and that's all it is. It's somebody telling their story. Your story is the most powerful story that you can share. Because here's the thing. I didn't really realize this so much until I had the name minister after my name. Because when you meet somebody for the first time, and, and what do men do the first thing? Oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a preacher. And you can just see the change. Oh, man, I hope I didn't say something I shouldn't have said. And when you tell them that, you know what, all those dumb things you're doing, I used to do them. And in fact, all those dumb things you're doing now, I sometimes do those too and you become human to them, there's a change in the way they look at you. And there's a change in the way they look at God because so many people in our society today think God's just sitting up in heaven and He's got a lightning bolt in His hand and He's just waiting for you to make a mistake and zap. And when you can explain to them and show them that God has taken your wretched life and turned you into something special, His child, then suddenly the walls begin to break down. There's no more powerful story that you can tell than your own. Fourth excuse. Exodus 4 and verse 10, I'm not gifted, Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now I've got to tell you, from, from my perspective, this one probably carries more weight than any of his other excuses. Because what he's really saying to God is this. God, for 40 years I've been wandering around out here in the wilderness with these sheep. 
And I haven't been really working on my negotiating skills very much while I'm doing this. And those sheep, they don't speak Egyptian. I'm kind of out of practice here. I could buy that one if I'm God. Well, at least I could think about it. God didn't even think about it. He immediately shoots it down. The next verse, verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You see, God has created our bodies, and we are, crea- we are created, according to Ephesians 2 and verse 10, to be workers, to do the work that God has prepared for us to do. And where we get kind of off track is what Moses did in chapter 2. Go off and try to do it on our own. You know, when we think about growing the church, which is what evangelism is all about, when we start thinking this is up to me, that's when we get in trouble. Oh, you know how we're going to grow the church? We have got to, we got to put a sign out in front of our building that says you can wear your flip-flops and your shorts and come casual and and we're just going to have a good entertaining time. When we go do that, are we growing the church? No. But that's what we think, because if you read the church growth books, that's what they say. Oh, we've got to get in step with the culture. We can't talk about sin, and we can't talk about hell. People don't want to hear those things. What they want to hear is everybody's going to heaven, so that's the kind of messages that we need to speak. Or we need to speak politically correct messages. Or we need to speak messages that will just make everybody feel good. How did the church grow in the first century? If you look at the, at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, before the Spirit came, there were 120 believers. 120. Within a few weeks, there were how many? Thousands. Thousands. And they didn't have a program. I don't know how they did that. And they didn't have to go hire 14, 15 different Uh, uh, ministers to come up with all the different programs. You know what they did? They met together in one another's house. They worshipped together. They prayed together. They studied together every single day. And they went from house to house and in the temple courts and they never stopped proclaiming Christ. That's how they grew. And they grew in ways that all of the, the PhDs from whatever uh, college today can come up with. They'll never come up with a better plan than what they did in Acts chapter 2. What you and I have to do is get out of the way and let the Word of God go to work. I, every Sunday morning, I walk into my office early, and I sit down, I close the door, and I pray the exact same thing every Sunday. Lord, get my weak flesh out of the way so that the Spirit can speak. It's not about me. It's about this. It's not about you all. It's about this. What we've got to do is go speak it. What we've got to do is is open it up and let people read it. Most effective evangelist in history, I think, outside of Jesus, would be the Apostle Paul. And when you think about the Apostle Paul, one of the most difficult churches that he ever spoke at was the Church of Christ in Corinth. And if you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 1, listen to the way Paul describes his evangelism efforts there. He says, When I came, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit of God, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, I didn't show up with a, with, with an enormous IQ. I didn't show up with, with fancy words. I just showed up and preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what's effective. You see, you and I are planters and you and I are waterers. That's all we do. God takes care of the rest. All we need to do is be ready. Because here's the thing. I'm convinced of this. God does not need my talent. He just doesn't. God can have all the talent He needs. God is not looking for people with talents. What God is looking for is people with attitude. And the attitude, when you compare Moses, compare him to Isaiah. Do you remember what Isaiah said when God called? Here I am, Lord, send me. Completely different attitude, and that's what we are called to. I want to get one more in. I think I've got about how much more time? I've got two minutes. Fifth excuse. Moses says, I don't want to get involved. Look at verse number 13 of Exodus 4. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. All the excuses had failed. He tried them all that he could think of. There was only one left. And that one was just to say, No. Is it ever a good idea when God says for us to go do something that the answer be no? <laughs> Just as God does not accept our excuses, God does not accept no. There's only one answer we give God, and that answer is yes. And you might notice in verse 14, the very next verse, after all of this, God is finally angry. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He says, man, Moses, what do you want? I have revealed myself to you in this burning bush. I have told you what you need to do. I have told you what to say. I have told you how it's going to work out. I have told you how this, this, this whole game is going to end. What do you want? And God says the same thing to us. I have given you what you need. I have told you what to say. I even promised to be with you. I have given you my Son. I have given you His church. I've given you everything you need. Don't give me excuses. Go. Go. That's all I want is for you to go. Real quick and we'll close. Four things we learn from this passage. Number one, God is patient. Oh boy, was God patient. Like I said, my boys, after the third excuse, we'd be having problems. Moses got to five. God is patient. Number two, Moses is no different than you and me. He was a reluctant warrior, just as we are reluctant. Number three, God will be with us every step of the way. Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And finally, number four, God calls all of us, is calling all of us to obey Him, to be faithful, and to go and do what God wants us to do. God's desire is that we be faithful. And God promises that if we are even to the point of death, 
that he will give us the crown of life. I appreciate your time and your attention tonight. Thank you.